Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown, where the plum purple haze, the one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers, inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music. Tall tales. True stories. And current goings on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter. And swim buck naked in summer. Welcome to episode 71 of the Brown County Hour. This is Vera Grubbs. And Dave Seastrom, along with the rest of the crew. This month, we are privileged to have the Reverend Josh Payton as our musical guest. And we'll listen to Carrie's interview with him and hear some of his great music. Brandon Harris explains the Brown County Hometown Initiative. Jeff Tryon shares an essay he calls Sea Change. And Dave Seastrom has a few words to say about his mother. Jim Eagleman informs us about winter survival. Chuck Wills tells a true story about country living in sub-zero weather. And Bill Todd tells us about the Brown County Health and Wellness Center. In our first segment, we'll listen to Carrie's conversation with Reverend Josh Payton. Brandon Harris explains the Brown County Hometown Community Initiative and we listen to Reb's tune, We Deserve a Happy Ending. This is Carrie Ray sitting with Reverend Peyton of Reverend Peyton's Big Damn Band. And uh, we're going to talk to him a little bit today about how he came to have a vast collection of handmade folk instruments, cigar box guitars, etc. Welcome to the studio, Rev. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for talking with me today. How did this happen? I think it, it seems like it happened to you, well, as opposed to something it, that you did on purpose. Well, you know, it, it is. So here's here's kind of how it started. You know, I've been playing country blues for since I was a little kid, right? And and you know, at home messing around, you know, if you are into the roots of American country blues. You've made a diddly bow over time and you've run string across the board and played slide on it and things, you know. So I've done a lot of that and and I've played on a lot of what other people might deem to be really crappy instruments. My last guitar tech, he said, Rev, you have a whole bunch of really crappy guitars. But he didn't say crappy, he said something else. But I, I play a lot of slide guitar and about, I don't know, I want to say 15 years ago, I was handed my first cigar box guitar that someone else made for me at a show. And I hadn't messed with that kind of thing in years. So up until then, that was like, it was like a phase as you were kind of coming up, learning that kind of music. Yeah. And then you were like, okay, I kind of been there, done that. Yeah, and, and I've got you know, national guitars and stuff. That's and, right. You know, different you know, instruments to play slide on. Yeah. And, and beyond the three, four, two, one string cigar boxes. But this fellow, his name was Johnny Can't Read. That was the name of the, the guy that made the first cigar box guitar I ever had. And he handed me one and I just loved it. And I'm going, man, you know, I kind of want to play this thing and show people what you can do with just three strings, you know? So we slapped a pickup underneath it. Didn't have a pickup on it. It was just, it was a paper cigar box. Actually the first one when it was cardboard, it was not wood. 
So I, I took that thing and I toured that paper box all over the world and sweat all over it till the box just disintegrated. And I ended up giving it to uh, my friends at Weber Speakers in Kokomo to put in their museum of you know antique instruments and stuff so they can have that. And, and I, had, cause I had Johnny build me another one and started playing that one. And over the years, little by little, at shows all over the country and all over the world, people start handing me these things. They would hand me cigar box guitars. They would hand me ones made out of biscuit boxes, wine boxes, bed pans. Been handed them made out of axes. I've been handed them made out of everything you can possibly think of. Some of them are just made by absolute woodworkers that are you can tell are just geniuses that have no idea what they're doing when it comes to making an instrument. And some of them are made by folk artists that also have no idea how to make an instrument. And then some of them are really great instruments, you know, and it runs the gamut, everything in between. One of my most recent ones, uh, this fella handed me one that was, he made it into a tackle box. You open it up, there's tackle inside this thing. I've got to made everything. I think I've seen the bedpan banjo that you yes, have, the old right. school bedpan yep. banjo. And don't you have one made out of like a dog bowl or with a dog bowl in it or yep. something? It's a dog right? bowl resonator, dog bowl upside down. So over the years, you know, I, I've just acquired this collection, all of them handed to me. You see it all over the internet now and YouTube, right? Like cigar box guitars, thing. it's like a thing, right? What yeah, can and we I've been make? doing this for years. You yeah, know? what and, can we and, make instruments you know, out uh, of? And... I've been doing this for years, and it started becoming a thing. And I'm going, how did this become a thing on the internet? And, you know, I've been doing this, and I've played all these different instruments, and I tour with these things, and I played them, videos of them and everything else. Like, how did this become a thing? Well, well it, it seemed like it was like, let's one-up each other, right? Yeah, like, well, I like think it seemed like it, yeah. What's the weirdest thing we can it, make It got out of hand, is what I felt like. It got out of hand. And I was like... I called up a buddy of mine that's built me built me pickups and different instruments, and I said, "Look, I want, I want a, a guitar made out of a shotgun." And he was like, "What?" And I said, "I want a guitar made out of a shotgun." And he sent me over plans, and I said, "Well, that that ain't gonna do because this won't shoot." And he said, "Well, if it shoots, it's gonna be really hard to play. Like it's gonna be terrible to play." And I said, "Look, man, I don't care what it plays like. Who are you talking to? It don't matter. If it's got strings on it, I will make music on it." I just needed to shoot. That's the most important thing. Playing is secondary. You know, get me a good, decent pickup on it, run strings on it, and I will make this thing happen. So, you know, a lot of the reason I did it was because, you know, I've been playing with different things, shovels, all kinds of stuff for years. Then all of a sudden, these guys start going viral on the internet, and I'm like... Oh, so this was personal. Oh, it was. Yeah, absolutely. This was this was a, this was a vendetta against the internet uh -huh. is what it was. Uh -huh. And I this kinda, was that you just kind of wanted to put it all to bed. Like well, I did. I wanted to kind of put it to rest once and for all. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So I'm out of town. I'm on tour and come home and, and uh, my buddy Brian has completed the shotgun guitar and I'm sick as a dog. And I'm going, oh man, I don't know. I'm talking to Breezy. I'm like, Breezy, I don't know if I can do this. And she's like, he's been working on this thing for two months for you. You better get over there. And my buddy Keenan, he had set up 200 foot of extension cords so we could you know shoot this thing in a yeah. safe spot and run it to an amp so we yeah. can hear now, it. Mind you, for those who don't know, Breezy is your wife. That's and, right. Yep. And basically, from what we can tell, the brains of the operation and yes. your conscience yes. for the most part. Yes. So I, I, I called up Keenan. I said, hey, we're going to do this you know, today. We're going to go ahead and do it. And we show up out there. There's a few people that were out there to kind of watch this thing go down that heard about it. And and I, it was we, kind of a secret, though, right? I mean, oh, you yeah. kind of kept I it kept a secret this a complete on secret. Yeah, I didn't want... I mean, I, I yeah. talked to, to builders of these things literally every show. Right. And I could not let this get out. You know, someone will take this idea, and I don't want that to happen. So the first time I shot this thing, I loaded it up. It's an old Winchester single shot, 12. He'd attach this uh, guitar thing to it, which... To the barrel. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. The we headstock was kind of the barrel. Yeah, exactly. Into the, the barrel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It had yeah. to be, you know, forward of the breech, you know, so we can still shoot this thing. So it's really short scale, about half what a guitar is, you know. So I shoot this thing one time in the dirt, and I'm like, oh, man, 
this thing works great. So I sat down and uh, I kind of got it in tune. I started playing this little riff on it, you know, and, and I looked at everybody and they're all standing there and I said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to clap your hands. So I get everybody clapping in time. And that was to keep time because I, I was like, I almost took the safety off and cocked it up so I could play the thing while I'm like shooting at the same time. And I thought, man, this thing's going to go out to the internet and I'm going to catch all kinds of grief for this. So I'm going to do it everything right. You know, so I, the thing was safety on uncocked. So all in one swoop, I had to be playing this thing. I had to shoulder the gun, cock it, take the safety off, fire the hit the target and then go back to playing the same song and not miss anything. So the, the, the clapping was to help me keep time and make sure I'm doing it right. So it's kind of like the practice is what you see. I did it one time and, and uh, I said to Breezy, I said, well, did we get it? And I was laughing so hard just because it worked. I just couldn't believe it, you know. And she's like, yeah, it worked. And I said, all right, fellas, that's it for me. I think that's all I needed to do. I was just trying to get that. And we shot one 41 second video. And Brian's like, that's it. That's all you're doing. What? The <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, man, that's all we needed. We got the video. And you know, I know he'd worked on it for two months. I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. And and I think Keenan was like, ah, oh, that's it, you know. That's, and, and we could not wait to get the video up. So I've been trying to do this sort of thing for years, since there was viral videos. Oh, you wanted you know? one that would oh, like yeah. just really go. Every, big. I mean, every like, video I've ever yeah. made had that in mind. Everything I've been trying to do this in the hopes that it would happen. You know, for for about eight years since we started making music videos. You know, I mean, it's hard to do. And you don't know what's going to resonate with people. Like, I did this one video where I'm playing 18 different instruments in one song. And I thought that was the coolest thing I ever did. I'm like, well, that's going to be the biggest thing ever. I'm playing melodicas and upright bass and resonators and all kinds of stuff, you know. And, nah, nah, that video didn't go as big. I've got videos I did on my front porch that were just me playing to it in front of an iPhone that went way bigger than that. And I just don't understand, you know, what happens. But I do know this. Seems like short and sweet's better because that 41 second shotgun video by the end of the day was one of the, the top 10 uh, videos on YouTube worldwide. And I'm getting calls from all over the world. People wanting to talk to us. It was on Comedy Central that night and all kinds of stuff, you know. You know, roundups of viral stuff that week, you know. Yeah. And, it, and it was, uh, oh man, it was like a Russian dude punching a guy and then, and then that. Like that was what was yeah. happening, you know. Yeah. And it was like the most Russian yeah. thing, the most American thing. Like yeah. it, Everyone yeah. told the same joke that yeah. week, you know. And I'm like going... What do we do with this? And I'm freaking out. I'm pacing the floor like, okay, we've been trying to do this forever. Now what happens? Well, I'll give you a little insight as to what happens. We start getting all these calls from reality TV shows. And they're basically wanting to exploit me and my family, you know. And I told them all to go to hell. I'm like, that's not what we, that's not why I started playing music, you know. Like, I like doing fun things, but, you know, like, this, this isn't like some stupid thing. This is what I've been doing since I was a little kid, you know. I've played 36 countries, for God's sakes. You know, go away with this stuff. It's pretty amazing, though, too, like, to kind of circle back to the collection of all these folk instruments and all that. I mean, obviously, you messed around with it when you were younger, but as far as as a professional, the trek all the way to kind of, like, making this viral video, to some extent, getting you to that point with that crazy instrument to end all crazy instruments of a working shotgun started with a guy handing you a cardboard, cardboard cigar guitar. box guitar, yeah. you know, and, it's, and the collection's ago. grown into all these instruments that are just amazing folk instruments that, uh, yeah. you know, like it's like the my, my trolling we were talking about earlier, my national. It's like, what is it worth? Who knows? Right. You know, from, from nothing to to infinite, you know, I mean, they're they're one of a kind pieces. You know, I try to yeah. break them out, I try to rotate them out and play them. Cause I, I love playing them. You know, I live in a little tiny place. You've been there. 
And yeah. it, uh, I, I can't have these things all there. You know, well, like I said, you have to move one often to yeah. sit down. I've dozens of these things. I've always wanted people to be able to experience them and enjoy them, you know, and take a look at, at the at the quirkiness, at the inventiveness. You know, I mean, it's uh, there is, is such a folk tradition when, when it comes to music in this country from this area beyond, you know, to me is very special to be able to share it. You know, so many people have been kind enough to give these to me to add to this collection I've got. And it has enriched me and my playing, you know, going from all these different instruments that are sure. are varying levels of, of being instrument toward the toward folk art you know yeah. it's it's made me a better player playing them over the years and i'd like for people to be able to take a look at them yeah cool well it's been a pleasure talking with you and uh thanks for stopping in been a little time with us while you got to break off the road and uh, we wish you well out there man thank you so much thanks for having me It's my privilege to introduce Brandon Harris, and he is from the HCI, which is the Hometown Collaborative Initiative, and he's going to explain what it is and what they're doing. Brandon, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me, everybody. I'm a volunteer of the survey team for the Brown County Hometown Community Initiative. You can find information online at browncountyhci.com, where you can learn more about the initiative and take the survey. You can go to indianahci.org forward slash Brown County, uh, as well as uh, on Facebook, Brown County HCI. Some of you may have noticed in the paper or heard uh, through the grapevine this last year about HCI. Basically, the Hometown Collaborative Initiative is for Indiana communities of less than 25,000 people. Programs awarded by the Indiana Office of Community and Rural Affairs, or OCRA, in uh, conjunction with Ball State University's Indiana Communities Institute, as well as Purdue University's Center for Regional Development. So what's the purpose of HCI? Well, it's a state program that Brown County was awarded back in early May. We are one of only five counties in the entire state to be awarded the program this year. The intention uh, really is to bring a diverse group of Brown Countyans together to learn to cooperate, become better leaders, and gather critical data that will help us guide decisions about our community's future. Uh, it's really about opinions. The program targets uh, the economy, leadership, and placemaking. Now, what do those mean? Economy, uh, build a supportive community environment for small businesses and entrepreneurs. Uh, do you have an opinion about the economy of Brown County? If so, we want it. Leadership. Uh, do we need to develop a new generation of local leaders who will take an active part in addressing community priorities? Uh, placemaking. Do we want to invest in public space developments, local foods, uh, or other qualities of life? We have no idea what the county wants unless we have the opinions and the surveys filled out. At our forum, which is coming up March 7th at the Intermediate School, um, the people who filled out the survey We'll get a chance to hear the results. The results are completely anonymous, but yet the opinions are extremely important for us. Uh, so again, the purpose of HCI is intended to help our community identify and build upon our assets and basically plan a path for the future. Well, our main goal with this program 
is to establish and sustain a group of local residents and leaders who are dedicated to advancing long-term vitality of our county and community by working together without any predetermined outcome. Uh, remember, we are volunteers, not elected officials, uh, just regular folks who said we're willing to help understand each other better and eager to find ways to better our county to live, work, and play. Together, we've learned and studied an in-depth analysis of our community and that, if you would believe it, comes with over $400,000 worth of free facilitation from the state. Brown County, by ourselves, had to go and mine this data. That's basically how much it would cost for us to get this important data. It's very important that we hear from the residents of Brown County, so again, please take the survey at indianahci.org forward slash Brown County or go to www.browncountyhci.com. The survey is open only until February 20th, and then all the results will be shared at the Community Forum on March 7th, which will be held at the Intermediate School Cafeteria from 5.30 until 8.30. So please go out and give us your opinions, Brown Countyans. Thanks so much for coming in, Brandon. Really appreciate the information. All right. Thanks, guys. Yeah.
Now we pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on Volunteer Powered Community Radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. Segment two begins with a conversation with Bill Todd about the Brown County Health and Wellness Center. Jeff Tryon shares his take on sea change. Jim Eagleman tells us about winter survival. And we'll close this segment with Reverend's tune, One Bad Shoe. I'm Pam Rader, and I'm here tonight with Bill Todd. Bill has been working for nearly seven years to get health care here to the citizens of Brown County. Oh, I'm so excited and so pleased to be able to share some of the uh, things that have gone on that have resulted in such a wonderful opportunity for the people here in this community. Seven years ago, I decided that uh, something ought to be done to improve the health of, of all people. So we have a need here. We don't have the, the amount of uh, doctoring and dentistry that we need. So we, we were looking for ways to improve on that. And lo and behold, Dr. Laura Hammack came in and I sat down with her and she said, we share the same idea. We share that a clinic that focuses on prevention and attending to quality care is the way to go. Uh, the new approach in medicine is fast becoming this kind of um, medicine. And she's the superintendent of the Brown County School System, correct? That's correct. Yes. That's correct. And Thursday, the new clinic opened. Yeah, you know, they rehabbed a um, house over in Eagle Park, and it is now well suited for this clinic, and people can go there at the open house, which is coming up um, on February the 6th from 4 to 6, and, and just see what a fine place they've uh, built there. And I think it's called the Brown County Health and Wellness Center. That's right. A group from Terre Haute has started this clinic, and they are there two days a week right now. And as we sign up more people, they will increase that time to an extra day or two. And this is a very affordable membership fee in comparison to the high cost of insurance. Yes, and that's one of the true advantages. You pay a membership, but it's like uh, going to the, the Y. You pay one fee per month, and it's $65 for adults. Then you don't have any other co-pays. When you come in, you've got unlimited access to the, um, the clinic and the doctors and the professionals there. And I heard that a lot of the lab tests they have are free. Lab tests and, and many of the drugs, many of the g generic standard drugs that people take are uh, given off the shelf as a part of your membership. What a great opportunity. Is there a website or a phone number? Uh, yes. If they call to schedule an appointment and get registered as a member, 812-720-3297. And the website is uh, www.bcs.healthcare-redefine.com. 
Or they can just show up on February 6th. They can just show up and take advantage of these wonderful people. I'm very familiar with this type of uh, medical approach and have been so pleased with how it, it treats people. They pride themselves on only having a two to five minute wait. You just walk in and you are seen right away. What is the name of your local group of citizens? We are called the Brown Countyans for Quality Health Care. We're a nonprofit group and we're uh, seeking donations and ways to help support people that can't pay for this so that we can fund the memberships for those people in the, in the county. Bill, I want to thank you for coming in and telling us about this. Thank you very much for that. This is My Brown County with Jeff Tryon. The more I thought about what really makes Brown County, Brown County, the more I began to realize how we each have our own particular Brown County. In a way, Brown County is what we each bring to it, what we find there for our own, what we each make of it. No one else sees it probably in the same exact way that I do. That's what makes it my Brown County. The times, they are a-changing in old Brown County, and sometimes it seems like they have not only caught up with us, but plumb run us over and left us squashed in the road like a possum. If you think about it, lagging behind the times is exactly what made Brown County what it is. After the Roaring Twenties, during the post-war boom, people who felt a little bit dislocated and out at sea by the pace of change in this country and the world at large took comfort in visiting a place that seemed to be stuck in yesteryear. Now, whether that was true or whether it was something that was more or less manufactured and sold to the tourists as a kind of tonic against modern times, Brown County has always benefited from an unhurried pace, a more laconic lifestyle, and a slower rate of change than neighboring places. Now, it may just be the onset of my seniority, but it seems like recently change is coming big, fast, and hard to Nashville and Brown County, and there seems to have been precious little consideration of what these changes will mean to people who actually live here, who always have. Biggest thing, of course, is the septic situation. Every homeowner in the county waits with bated breath to see what the new rules will be and how they will be enforced. On this hinges your actual future property rights, not just the ones you imagine that you have. I see they're romping and stomping down on the village green again, and it's nice that they're rehabilitating the old town well, don't get me wrong, but the whole thing just looks a lot more like a pocket park jammed into a dense urban area than the simple little shaded lawn it used to be. A couple years ago, they tore down the old wooden gazebo across the way, which looks sort of small town and Midwestern, and replaced it with the stone bunker down there now that looks something like the ancient temple of Og or something like that. And they managed to cut down a couple of nice big shade trees in the process. Same with this latest project. It started with the chainsaw bringing down some nice shade trees and ended with a log pile for the kids to play on. Nice. For a town that brags about being Tree City USA, Nashville sure does cut down a lot of its trees. It is a lot less shady than it used to be, even five or ten years ago. The worrisome thing is they're now saying it has been designated Wild Bird City or something, so look out, birds! They tore the old jail off the end of the courthouse and put a plastic buffalo there. I don't know what that means. 
They're on about the third attempt to get the taxpayers to pay for a big renovation on the courthouse. Monstrosity alert. Let me tell you, a bureaucracy just naturally tends to want to get bigger, and there's not a circuit court in the land that wouldn't just love to double its territory. I kind of like the big falling leaves sculpture down on the plaza of the professional building downtown, but it, it does kind of dominate the scene. Again, it looks a little too urban for a small village in southern Indiana, more like something you would see in Columbus or Carmel. It's the same with the big woods, folks. It's nice to have a successful business located in the county, but it, it just seemed like all of a sudden they were everywhere and everything. One old-timer said to me, well, reckon the next thing is to just change the name of the town to Big Woods, Indiana. Now the beer makers have taken the high ground, acquiring a huge campus up on Firecracker Hill above the 4-H fairgrounds. Above us all, really. I guess it'll be bigger than the whole town. Now they want to put a music venue right on the main artery into town, smack dab in the middle of an area that has already been developed along other lines. I'm no expert, but doesn't this new proposed site have more or less the same issues floodplain-wise than the old Opry property down on Green Valley Road? Well, those things aren't for us to know or think about. Somebody's going to make a lot of money off of it one way or another, and a few people may get a few low-paying jobs, but nothing compared to the kind of change they're going to bring to our community and our culture. But it's always been that way in Brown County. Change always comes, eventually, and I reckon the old farts have always sat around and grumped about it. Sometimes, though, you just get that feeling that a sea change is underway, with many major changes happening over a relatively short period of time, and that things will never really be the same again. Much of what I learned as a student of wildlife sciences had to do with survival. Survival in marginal habitats with a large predator base or lack of it. Survival when food shortages or competition for living or nesting space was crucial. And of course, when survival in bad weather became a key feature, if the species was going to be around. Natality, the birthing process and care of young, and mortality, the number of those that die over a given period, is always in flux, we learned. These two aspects rarely matched each other. If they did, the population was said to be stagnant. The number of animals of a particular species that die over time never is the same as those that are born. Biologists look for reasons to explain the difference, opting sometimes for intervention, habitat manipulation, reducing or minimizing impacts, or sometimes letting things alone. On these cold days, when I check the bird feeders by the house to see if they are empty, and they almost always are, I recall a study done by some biologists years ago wanting to know under what severe weather conditions would birds not feed. We've had some sub-zero weather lately, and wind chills are what we talk about, but how do birds react? We know birds feed almost con constantly all day long during cold periods. But at what temperature and what kind of frigid conditions, the biologist asked, will birds not feed? They took into account distance to the food source, time since last feeding, and environmental conditions like cover, water, wind, and predicted forecasts. Would feeding activity increase if birds anticipated a cold front coming? And if they did, did they feed right up to the first snowflake? To know if it was the same bird coming and going, they marked them with brightly colored bird bands on their legs. 
and they used the same kind of bird food regularly and made sure feeders were never empty so as to provide constant data review. And of course, as it usually is with any sound scientific investigation, the results they hoped would help us learn, maybe in this case, how to live compatibly with wildlife. It's well known that birds can anticipate a cold front long before the TV weather channel makes it known to us. Birds are much more attuned to changes in atmospheric pressure than we are. As much as 48 hours out, birds and many species of wildlife can already begin preparing for the drop in conditions. Over several years at the research station, students maintained the feeders, recorded their observations, and reviewed findings. And I call them interesting findings. Birds can react to different kinds of precipitation they learned, whether it is snow or worse, freezing rain. If it is a soft, powdery snow, light and swirling, birds will feed. But if the rains change at all to heavy downpours with temperatures plummeting and then freezing, feeding frequency changes. Light rain and temperatures above freezing are still okay. Birds will not interrupt their visits and come and go regularly. What moisture collects on feathers is simply shaken off, but change the precipitation to freezing rain and life becomes critical for songbirds. Next time you get goosebumps from a sudden chill, think of birds covered with feathers experiencing a similar effect. Their skin can also become bumpy with a chill, but at each bump a feather is attached, and the result of a goosebump for them is fluffed out feathers. You may have seen this when they perch. They appear almost twice the size than when in normal temperatures. And their larger body form will cover their toes and legs, protecting them. As long as they can feed and stay dry out of any wind and freezing rain that would soak feathers and remove any insulating capacity, they can make it. But once freezing rain hits, compounded with high winds, they are worse off and may die. The study concluded with an anecdotal reference the students commonly noted. Birds almost never let winds and rains hit them from behind, chilling their rump, back, and legs. Rather, they will face into the wind and rains, so feathers are not ruffled, shedding off the wetness as they tolerate cold, freezing winds to a point. How birds in this case react to weather is one of the most important features to examine in knowing how they live, but other facts of life they encounter, biologists call them limiting factors, also come into account. It was the well-known scientist and biologist Aldo Leopold who first coined the term and identified them as key features in whether animals would survive. He listed besides weather, the change of the chance of accidents happening, of course, predation, starvation, habitats changing, but also hunting and disease as things that may have a major influence on animal survival. These factors will help determine for us how many, where, and for how long wildlife will live. I hear from listeners they regret being away from home during the winter for a short time and not filling the feeders. Guilt, they say, is overwhelming. They jokingly imagine somehow birds are patiently waiting by the feeder for their return. The birds appear obviously disappointed, they say, with wings folded across their chest, eyes rolling, tapping their feet, maybe even glancing at their imaginary wristwatches. But of course, birds are opportunists and visit your feeders as they do other feeders and as they feed elsewhere on insect egg cases, weed seeds, dried fruits of dogwood, grape, witch hazel, multiflora, rose, and others. They will not suffer as though a feeder goes unfilled. So no guilt, please. But feeding brings them close for us to watch. We get to visualize where they go at night and above all, appreciate their resiliency.
The feeder study I mentioned earlier said nothing about them becoming dependent on our feeders to survive. They are much too adapted and well-suited for their life as a bird. Enjoy your Brown County birds this winter. Stories and questions? Contact me, Jim Eagleman, at this radio station. The email address is studio at browncountyhour.com. Thanks for listening.
Now we pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on Volunteer Powered Community Radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 at Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. Our final segment begins with Brandon Harris giving us his Brown County Top 10 list. Dave Seastrom shares a few thoughts about his mom. Chuck Wills recounts a true tale of Brown County Sub-Zero adventure. And we'll finish the show with the Reverend's tune, Cornbread and Butter Beans. Hi guys, I'm Brandon Harris with the Hometown Collaborative Initiative. And uh, I recently uh, discovered 10 did you know facts about Brown County. Number one, our population is only 14,750. Number two, Brown County has the oldest mean age in the state and our fastest growing demographic is retirees. Number three, 60% of working residents commute outside of our county. Number four, over half of the lands are protected and thus not taxable, but county services are still required. Number five, compared with roughly 15% growth elsewhere in our state, the population in Brown County is projected to decline drastically by 2050, while the 65 and over population is expected to grow by nearly 62%. Number six, the assessed property values have increased less than the rate of inflation. Number seven, per capita income has been trending up over the last five years, but when we adjust for inflation, it is still below the 1999 highs. Number eight, on educational attainment, we're actually above the state average on high school graduation rates, but fall below the average with those with associate's degrees or higher. Number nine, Public school enrollment has been declining since 2009, and the need for additional funding resulted in a successful referendum in 2016. Number 10, Brown County is the most forested county in the state and is home to the largest state park, Brown County State Park, as well as numerous state and national forest lands. Those are 10 did you know facts about Brown County. Most of us would prefer that life be linear, in other words, a sequence of events where one thing happens after another. Unfortunately, all too often, this is not the case. My mom has been ill for a long time, and last week we hit a crisis point. This happened at the same time that I had an obligation to be part of the Indiana Forest Alliance Wild and Scenic Film Festival. Obviously, mom's needs come first. When my wife Becky and I visited mom on the day before the event, it was clear that mom was in trouble. We arranged for immediate care, and I called my brother in California and asked him to come. This became a whirlwind of activities that resulted in mom being placed in a hospice center. While my brother was in charge, I was able to fulfill my duties at the film festival, and by all accounts, the event was a great success. This is the crazy confluence of existence and the gut-wrenching conflict of obligations. I knew that mom was in good hands, but I, I felt awful that I wasn't there. 
The next morning, I drove to Indianapolis in a raging snowstorm, and a few hours later, I was sitting beside my mother and wondering if she was taking her last breath. Becky and I thought we were on top of the situation, but it's clear that trying to run the show from an hour and a half away didn't work. Up until last week, Mom was pretty sharp, and she was doing a good job of taking her medicine. When her condition changed, we believed that she was taking her pain medications randomly, and this brought about the crisis we experienced. As the week progressed, Mom's improved treatment led to a turnaround in her health. Once she was being fed and hydrated and her medications were being properly administered, she rallied, and she began to resemble a version of her old self. Interestingly, her improved condition led to another crisis. We signed a deal with a hospice center, and they agreed to keep her for up to eight weeks. But when her condition improved, the officials at the center informed us that she had to make other arrangements, and they would only keep her until the end of this month. As confusing as this is, I get their point. Their facility is designed to care for people in the final hours of their life. And once Mom started feeling better, she became her old ornery self. No one else in the hospice center cared if their hair was brushed or demanded access to a telephone. We're glad to have her back, but there's no question that she's very ill and needs continuous care. This began a process to find a place for her to go where she can be properly cared for. After a series of meetings, we've made arrangements for her to be in the nursing care facility in the home where she was living independently before she became ill. Our cousin flew in from California, and then there were three of us making decisions. Mom's improved condition added another wrinkle to the situation. She now views herself as being in control. She means well, but suddenly I had to accommodate the interest of three other people, and the only vote that counts is Mom's. At the heart of all of this confusion is the question of who pays for what. Medicare this and hospice that and shouldering the cost of room and board became the central topic. Then there's the issue of closing down her apartment and liquidating all of her stuff. Mom's apartment is neat as a pin, but when you open any drawer or closet, it's stuffed to the gills. It turns out that Mom is a secret pack rat. I have this tendency myself, so it comes as no surprise that there's a DNA component. I have a lot of feelings about this story. If we are fortunate to live long enough, it's likely that each of us will face a similar situation with a loved one. I realize in hindsight that I could have done a much better job preparing for the inevitable, and I think the reason I didn't is because somewhere in my mind I thought this would never happen. I figured that Mom would simply pass peacefully in her sleep one night and there would be no need for intervention. It should have been obvious, but now I know it's always best to have a plan B in the works. This is Dave Seastrom. See you next time. It all started with a cup of coffee. Here in the wilds of Brown County, it's midwinter, and the weather has been on the colder side of miserable. When it's below zero with ice and snow shin deep, it's that cup of coffee that keeps my wife fueled, thawed, and happy. And on this particular day, I turned on the kitchen faucet to make a pot, and it said, nothing doing, no water. Now, for city dwellers, no water often means a call to the water company. No such luck for me. 
No water in winter means only one thing. The well pump is frozen. And that leads to no coffee, which leads to frosty looks for my beloved. It's a real backwoods emergency. Now, I know from experience I need to get some heat down to the pump, which is about 500 feet from the house, down the hill by the pond. Our pump is down there in a big pipe jutting up from the ground with a concrete cap right next to our neighbor's pump. So after bundling up in enough winter gear to explore the polar ice cap, I waddled down to see how bad it was. Upon peeling back the lid, sure enough, icebergs. Now you can understand, this pump is submerged under about five feet of water in a pipe three feet across, and there's no way you can just point a torch at it and melt anything. You need big heat. The tool for the job is the Heatzilla 2000, a 30,000 BTU propane blast furnace, a proper piece of heavy equipment. And there's no way I'm carrying that down the hill to the pond through the snow. No, sir. I need a tractor and other implements of destruction. And that's where this gets interesting. You see, I pulled the heater out of the shed and found the cold had cracked the propane O-rings, so I had to get over to Bear Hardware before they closed and grab a couple of new ones. But before I did that, I had to plow the driveway so I didn't skid down the icy hill and end up in the pond, so that means starting up the John Deere. Except the John Deere had a flat tire and a dead battery. So I went to start the generator in order to fire up the air compressor in the jump box, and it wouldn't start. That means rummaging for the can of starting fluid, which ended up being exactly where I left it last time. And in short order, the generator was generating, air compressor compressing, tires filling, battery box jumping, and tractor tractoring. Whew, success. Now to plow off that driveway and head to Bears for the O-ring. Of course, this trip includes standing around the cash register for a bit, eating free popcorn, and talking with the fellas about how blasted cold it is. Yes cold enough to freeze up my well pump again. After a successful hardware trip, I was back with an O-ring and tractored the heater, generator, and propane tank down to the pump, and I set the heater up with some homemade ductwork fashioned from an old barbecue grill I scavenged from the junk pile beside the barn. Now I'm guessing that city folks may not have a junk pile or a barn, which may give further evidence to either how ill-prepared they are for country living or how smart they are to have a place in town where they can probably get coffee at the touch of a button. Do not even say the word Starbucks to me right now. At any rate, I focused the fury of the blast furnace down into the pipe for a good hour. Things were looking very melty, but a call up to dear wife confirmed no water, no coffee, nothing. Fortunately for me, I have a secret weapon on speed dial, my neighbor who is not only an expert plumber, but he's the guy that installed the pump to begin with. I hesitantly called him and said, uh, Billy, my pump's froze again. I may need you. Being the good guy that he is, he dropped everything to come and help me puzzle it out. And Billy confirmed, in fact, I had all of the equipment a country guy could hope for in this situation. The John Deere, the generator, the propane tank, Heatzilla 2000, custom barbecue ductwork, and it was all pointed at my neighbor's pump. Yes, sir, I'd been thawing the wrong one for nearly two hours. It was so hot, in fact, that I'm sure my neighbor could have brewed coffee right from the tap had he wanted to. So after redirecting my efforts on the proper target for a time, water was restored, though my pride was still a little frozen. My beloved finally got her cup of hot coffee, and life in the woods was tranquil once again. Lesson learned. 
but to tell you the truth, next time I may have to leave the heavy equipment in the barn and just take her to town and get a coffee from the chocolate mousse. Maybe even check into the inn for a few days of cable TV and hot running water. I'm still country if I stay in Brown County, right? Thanks for tuning in to episode 71 of the Brown County Hour. 
recorded in our studio at the History Center here in downtown Nashville, and brought to you the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. and the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. The Brown County Hour is brought to you by a diverse group of folks who believe now, more than ever, the world is for everyone. This show was produced by Chuck Wills, Pam Rader, Rick Fettig, Vera Grubbs, Carrie Ray, and Dave Seastrom. We would also like to thank Slats Klug for our theme music. You have been listening to the Brown County Hour, coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County home.